Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 10 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is our conclusion, Lessons for the Last Christians. This podcast was originally recorded in July of 2021. Thank you for joining us, and God bless you. Welcome back, everybody. God bless you. This is Lesson 10. Lesson 10 of 10, our final lesson in this series on the Russians, Russian New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church, a type of the end times. And tonight we're going to be wrapping it up. We're going to be summarizing, going back and looking at the whole course and remembering some of the high points and then talking about the contemporary situation, applying some of what we've learned and ending with some prophetic words and uh, inspiring words from our uh, contemporary saints in the last 50 years or so who've been extremely influential for all of us, but also have paid close attention to the significance of the new martyrs. So tonight uh, we'll be wrapping up. God bless you for your participation. We thank you for your presence and we ask you to uh, pray for us tonight and, and going forward. As we, uh, as we move forward, all of you who are joining us in Crowdcast, good evening. Thank you for your support. And everybody on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, thanks for joining the Orthodox Ethos uh, channel and podcast and all the, all the work we're doing here. So let's start. Let's get started. We've got a lot to cover. We've got 51 slides. Uh, we're going to be moving quickly through them. And commenting on things as we go. So hopefully we'll have some good lessons to help you in your spiritual struggle. So let's see our prayers and begin right now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with a pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds and the understanding of the gospel teachings. Plants also fear of the blessed commandments and without all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things will please you unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God. And of thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, all holy, good, and life, creating spirit. Well, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. All right. So, 
let's bring that up and move down a little bit to our class tonight. This is our conclusion again, lessons for the last Christians. And we're going to begin by just reminding us of some things that we started off this whole series with, and then we'll be going through some old posts, old uh, cards that we think are most important to point out uh, some of the highlights of this whole series. So just to remember, what we had from the beginning is the preface of the Russian Catacomb Saints by, uh, I think it was written by Abbot Herman, the testimony of the new martyrs, which often lays bare an intense experience of life in Christ is the best gift Orthodox Russia has to offer the West. It will, not prevent similar, it will not prevent similar things from happening in the West, as we see, as we see, as we experience. Step by step, the totalitarian spirit is taking over the West and the whole world, really. One can already feel them coming toward us, but it will help us face the sufferings of our godless age with strength and true Christian conviction. It truly, I think, anyone who's followed this whole series, and you can comment in offer your thoughts. Uh, I think that has rung true, has it not? Have you been encouraged? Have you been inspired? Have you been strengthened with true Christian conviction? I think you should, having witnessed the response of our saints to the Bolsheviks and to the innovation and renovationists of the, of the various uh, versions of renovationism. Uh, we've seen and been inspired by the martyrdoms and the confessions of so many saints. So I think that Abbot Herman really hit it on the nail. Now, Father Seraphim uh, Father Damascene here describing Father Seraphim's thoughts, uh, and we're going to end with Father Seraphim tonight. Um, Father Seraphim believed that by learning how their co-believers in the communist countries struggled against the open enemies of their faith, Orthodox Christians in the free world, at this time right in the 1970s, Father Seraphim right in the 1970s, Father Seraphim rose, of course, Orthodox Christians in the free world could gain courage to fight their own battles against worldliness and also endure the more violent persecutions come to the West as well, indeed. So that, I think, is recapping why we're doing this series and why it's so important for all of us today. Uh, we have to draw upon the lives of the saints, and especially the, the recent ones, and especially the ones who've gone through things that we may and increasingly are going through. Now, remember how we arrived at the Bolshevik Revolution and why we might be arriving at something today, and what is the key, what's the key for our orthodox response. Now, there are many responses to COVIDism. There are many responses to totalitarianism. And there are many responses to heresy. I mean, many techniques and, and uh, approaches to responding to these things. But at the core, all of it has to be, if it's going to be an orthodox Christian response, it has to be centered on repentance and humility and uh, prayer. And so uh, if we understand that that is the key to withstanding the, the, the machinations of the enemy, the, the methodology. Uh, we also understand that when that's absent, that's when the enemy has, let's say, rights, so to speak, power. Uh, the door is opened. Uh, he walks naked through history at the end of time, and this is increasingly apparent. He is step-by-step uh, step in my short life. Uh, you know, just in my, my own memory, we can see the progression uh, both in America, but also here in Greece. I've been in Greece 23 years, 22 years. I've seen the progression step by step of, of a disintegration of Christian outlook, Christian community uh, in, in the worldliness, the spirit of the world uh, uh, more and more. And of course, it, it is directly related to a rise in a rationalistic 
trust in man and science and governments in and technology and and uh, walking away from trusting God. Uh, and all of this is, of course, ex- extremely in, uh, linked. And so nothing is an accident here. There are no accidents in the spiritual life. There are no accidents in the in the uh, at all in life. Everything is there's the spiritual laws at work. There's the providence of God at work. And St. John here reminds us, St. John, the great prophet before the fall uh, 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 of Russia to communism, and now probably speaking here right at the turn of the century or a little bit before, is Russia, if you fall away from your faith, as many of the intellectual class have already fallen away, you will no longer be Russia or holy Russia. These are such powerful prophetic words. Uh, good to remember them. And if there will be no repentance in the Russian people, then the end of the world is near. God will take away the pious czar and will send a whip in the person of impious, cruel, self-appointed rulers who will inundate the whole world with blood and tears. Truly prophetic words, which were unfortunately fulfilled. And if anyone has a doubt about the truth of our Orthodox faith and the truth of our prophets and our apostles, all they do is start reading the life of the saints. And again and again, these prophetic words, again and again, the clairvoyance of the saints is apparent. Again and again, the presence of divine grace is apparent in the lives of our saints. And this is our great boast and the great proof of the truth of the Orthodox faith. Now, there's another catacomb bishop who has some very important words in this vein. I'm just going to share quickly. I'm going to be moving very quickly through these slides, so stay with me. Don't get too lost in the chat box. Do you think that these, that those who destroy the churches and monasteries are to blame? Again, I want, I want us to remember and focus on what are the keys to both preventing and, and why things uh, become un- unraveled and the center is lost. And these quotes, I think, touch on that. No, they are not to blame. There is no one to keep, to restrain them. There's no one to restrain them. When there were honest monks and nuns in the monasteries, and the Lord, for their sake, these few people suffered, endured the sins of all the other people. But when they were gone, the Lord did not tolerate it any longer and threw off the rest of the people. Let the people not be angry with the Lord, but be angry with their deeds. Let them repent. This is a very, very true and important uh, principle here. When there is a cry of repentance and, and plea for spiritual guidance and, and pr- plea for spiritual life on our part, God sends his people, his saviors, his his, his uh uh, his prophets, his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of those who work t- together with him for the salvation of the world. Uh, this is very apparent in church history, the lives of the saints. Uh, when great spiritual deeds are achieved, it's because there was a base of faithful who were crying out and seeking it. And those things go together. God's hand and our faithfulness, always synergy, always working together. So when you see a, a, a gap, when you see a, the rise of evil, uh, men and, and, and demonic energy is because of this synergy not being present, this apostasy of man from God and forth not being, say, handcuffed by our apostasy. And so that's the key for the avoidance of that in our lives and generally in our societies when we understand that we are co-responsible. It is our apostasy that brings about the, the emptying of the spiritual space, so to speak, and the entering in of the, demo- of, of the demonic powers. And the response immediately on the part of our saints was to preach repentance, as you saw and remember in our first couple 
sessions, we talked about St. Tikhon, the great preacher of repentance, and how this is the Orthodox response. And when you see the preaching of repentance, know that the Orthodox are properly responding to the crisis. And this is something to observe in this prevent, prevent, present COVIDism. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm following the coining of a term by another uh, higher monk that I know. It's called COVIDism, ecumenism, socialism. We have COVIDism, the whole spirit of the age today, which is uh, just filled with fear and, uh, and, and intimidation and all this. Uh, so, this is uh, this is the response. And so where is that response today? Where is the preaching of repentance? Where is the where where when this covidism erupted and everybody's cowered in fear and they propagandized and put us all in a corner and we all sat fearful uh, of of this uh, of this supposed pandemic. Where was the church, meaning the hierarchy and the priests and the people to come out the streets with the relics and the icons and processions to do the blessings of the waters to come with the uh, unction service and all the rest that's at the disposal of the church. Where was that? We've had a grave lack of leadership, a grave abandonment of what is proper. Now there are certainly exceptions. There's always exceptions. I'm talking generally. I'm happy to praise and, and, and point out the exceptions always, but I think generally speaking, we have to admit that we did not bring out the power and the uh, the tools uh, at our disposal in the church, and it, it, this is again a sign uh, of a uh, of an apostasy, of a, a delusion on the part of, of Orthodox Christians. We have to be honest about that and be uh, face facts. And of course, there are again exceptions. Monasteries, other places, never shut down and never went along with this insanity. Uh, but the response is preaching repentance. And when we don't hear repentance, and that's something generally we don't hear much of in our day and age because of the worldliness and secularism, that is a, ma a major sign, again, of our uh, lack. And it does not help bring about the end of the apostasy and the end of the, of the crisis. Um, now, let's look briefly at some of the Bolshevik methods again and how it compares to the New World Order methods that we're seeing before us today. And first of all, generally, this methodology, as we pointed out in some of our podcasts a year ago, this dialectic, this Marxist dialectic, which is that there is a reaction provoked with a new law, for instance. The Bolshevik introduced a new decree, separation of church and state, for instance. And then, of course, there would be a rebellion or a reaction, or and there would be people would be provoked to react, and that's that's almost guaranteed. And if we're honest, that's not a bad thing per se. But there's a trap that's been laid. And in the times of the 20s, there were religious processions and they were put down forcefully and there was killing of the faithful. And martial law was declared because of this supposed outbreak of rebelliousness to use, to use this to excuse a crackdown to further blame the victims. And the clergy are the scapegoats, of course, and they blame the clergy for not not going along with these demonically inspired laws that are passed. So this is this is the methodology that's at work from then to now, and it's important to understand it when we see it, and not immediately just run into 
uh, the various traps that are being laid. What do we do? Well, we'll talk about that, get into that question and answer. But it's important, first of all, at this stage, just to point out how uh, they approach things. And of course, we remember that very soon in this series, we addressed the question of the renovationists, those innovators that came into the life of the church and uh, seen an opportunity with the Bolsheviks. They introduced their uh, heterodox and uh, uh, delusional ideas about church life. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about them because that's going on as well today. Let's, let's be honest and understand that the renovationist spirit did not die. And in certain, certain, certain powerful spiritual centers, you know, like ecclesiastical centers, renovations never died, never went away. It's still alive and it's been pushed. And it's that spirit uh, that you'll see here in a moment. We'll present aspects of it. Again, these are lessons for us to, to discern where is orthodoxy, who is orthodox, where we follow, who are the saints, uh, what is this delusional stance that or even orthodox Christians and scholars and and uh, bishops and priests can fall into. One of the key things is they spread the social gospel, the service of the church to the worldly aims of socialism then and now. This is a sign of the spirit of Antichrist. The church at the service of the world, the church becoming the world. The church no longer having an eschatological stance, the church becoming this world-focused. Peace and security for this world, of course, is what the, the Antichrist will bring, he'll promise to bring to the world. And the church, quote-unquote, the church, those apostates who will go along with that will fall into that trap and turn the church into something that is at the service of this world. We see that today. We see that mentality. Whatever the state says, uh, health of the body above all things. I mean, a loss of the hierarchy and the understanding of the role of the church in the world. It's all right before us. So the renovationists were all united in their opposition to capitalism as a great moral injustice, quote-unquote, quoting one of the leaders. And they agreed that Christian love will not be reconciled with social economic inequality or the exploitation of man by man with the existence of capitalism in a Christian world. They therefore welcomed Soviet power, which is striving to replace capitalism with communism. Uh, now, in our day and age, we don't have that kind of, you know, extreme Bolshevik-ism but what we have is a, you know, things like the World Economic Forum, and we have the Great Reset that's coming, and we have religious uh, leaders like the Pope embracing uh, this whole agenda in many ways, economically and socially, calling for uh, Christian people just to just to uh, run and uh, get vaccinated, for instance. That's their Orthodox bishops are doing the same, you know, just totally. And in fact. Some are even come out in favor of mandatory vaccination, another sign of a, of a capitulation to the spirit of the world and the mentality of the world, uh, which is totally unorthodox to call upon anything like that. I mean, it's not even in a worldly way supported by uh, things like the Declaration of Nuremberg uh, and, and, uh, and other, other civil uh, human rights declarations over the years. How much more uh, should it not be the uh, orthodox? But... I digress. So the, there are examples of this same stance among the renovationists today, that they're running after the contemporary equivalent of the Bolsheviks, the Soviet power, the, so, the uh, extremists on uh, the uh, far left, usually, the, the uh, communists of our day, and 
they're, they're, they're embracing it as if it were an extension or an expression of the gospel. And of course, it's a grave dis, uh, disservice and uh, uh, dissolution and disintegration of the uh, fullness of the gospel. Uh, renovations then and now lacked any real links with Orthodox tradition. Look, some of the characteristics of the renovations. They were not ascetics or true theologians, in other words, those who speak of God from experience. They didn't have epignosis, hands-on knowledge, but they were intellectuals. They were intellectuals who spent time in salons, as we'll see, and who sought external changes, moral improvement, quote-unquote, with, without inner spiritual purification, without, without the inner life of the man being transformed, but they wanted a reformation of society without focusing on the interior life, another characteristic of a false uh, orthodox stance, a renovationist stance. They looked for a liturgical renovation. They wanted liturgical renovation, idealism and romantic calls for a return to a more pristine time, an idealism to the ancient church, just like many of the Protestants who are uh, who jettisoned church tradition, rejected the orthodox churches, the one church, uh, and they jumped back through history uh, from the 15th century or the 20th century, and they jump back to the to the first, second, and third century, as if the church ceased to exist and all the rest. This uh, again is a desire for external changes without necessarily uh, the hierarchy of things, which is of course always starting with the internal man and the repentance and all the rest. Identification with the reforms and the movements of the heterodox is another form, another uh, sign of a renovationist uh, and. This was on, on display in the Second Vatican Council and in the Cretan Council in, uh, in a few years ago where we had heterodox uh, coming as visitors, even those that have been uh, descendants of those who have been condemned by previous ecumenical councils, came as visitors, as uh, representatives, as observers. And, of course, the Orthodox went to the Second Vatican Council and praising those innovationist reformational movements, which of course are foreign and unheard of in the Orthodox Church. We don't need to go back to get something we lost. We don't need to reform something because it's been distorted. What we need to do is go deeper in the tradition as the saints have shown us in our day. If there can be a St. Paisus, a St. Porfirios, a St. Iacobos, and all these new martyrs and all these saints in our day, St. John of Shanghai and St. Francisco, that means that all of us, without changing one iota, can become saints. And that's the point of the whole life, is to become a saint. So therefore, what are we searching for? Why are we uh, desiring to go back as if we have lost something? It's all present, since there can be saints. There is plenty uh, uh, to do right now on ourselves, in our church, to repent. Uh, there's minor changes all the time. There's things, sure, that have crept in. Uh, but, but the spirit of the Holy Fathers is not to... Uh, undo and reform and, and, and have a revolution, an overturning uh, and a doubting uh, like the, that happens among the heterodox. So that's a, another sign of a renovation as we saw that then, we see it today. The innovation and renovation on an institutional level. They want changes for the sake of power. That was what was, we saw going on with renovationists, a democratic rule, quote unquote, uh, politically correct. They want to be politically correct. So they want to have a reinstitution of married bishops, for instance, replacing monastic bishops. 
They want to have a resurrection of the institution of the deaconesses. But that's something we can't get into right now, but that's a sign of a, of a renovationist in many ways. Uh, there's been documents that we've issued. I've actually been a part of one that was issued a few years ago uh, uh, from several of the seminaries here in the United States. Uh, and dealing with the whole issue, why is that an innovationist stance? You can go take take a look at that. It was uh, issued by the deans of St. Tikhon's, I think, or St. Tikhon's as well, St. Vladimir's and Holy Trinity Seminary in Jordanville, and uh, uh, dozens and dozens of theologians and deacons and priests who signed that document showing why the reintroduction of the, of the deaconesses, something that had fallen away over a thousand years ago about, uh, that is a, a, a part of the spirit of the age and innovation and not something that's um, justified pastorally, allowing for the clergy to remarry. Big part of the renovationist platform then and now. Uh, changing the liturgical calendar to bring orthodoxy closer to heterodoxy. That is at the, 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 at the base of the desire for the, the change of the calendar was uh, this... Uh, Love of the world, this desire to be one with heterodox, is very clear. It's stated, openly stated by those who desired to change the calendar in the 1920s and the renovationists were very much in favor of that. Um, and then we look here um, at, well, this is actually just some slides that show what we were just talking about. Um, among the renovationists, they oppose monasticism. Uh, they, uh, um, they really focused on Christ's humanity. They, they, they would, they would uh, become much like the Protestants in the sense of religious societies embodying their materialistic ideology, the new social political order, and all the rest. Um, they spoke highly of the October Revolution, as we said. It brings to life, they said, great values of equality and labor, which are found in Christian teachings. So the identification of the Orthodox Christian gospel, the true, the true gospel of Christ, with a worldly atheist approach, I mean, it's uh, unbelievable, really, uh, is a, a sign of renovationism and apostasy. And we have aspects of that today in the church as well. And we have, I should have been showing these slides before, forgive me, uh, but these are examples of what we've been talking about. The uh, introduction of the new calendar, this is actually one of the main, if not the main culprit in this divisive Introduction of the new calendar, which was done in an anti-canonical way, which was done piecemeal and created division between the local churches. And, of course, eventually we have the schisms that happened in the local churches because of the calendar change. And the, uh, the whole, uh, at one with the renovations of Russia, the remarriage of clergy, and, and all the rest, which are, again, focused on the external renovation of the church instead of a, a internal renewal, uh, which would then bring about a external uh, renewal in the life of the church. So the, there's a clear abandonment of the hierarchy and the order of things as the church understands them. Uh, the, the, the whole worldly secular spirit, of course, is behind so much of the renovationists. Now, let me focus a little bit on the approach of the Bolsheviks and how they took advantage of the of the uh, renovationists and how that happens today as well. So we have renovationist clergy, worldly minded clergy, put it simply, who are 
essentially become tools of the powers that be in this world, and they're used for purposes that undermine the unity of the church. That's what we saw with Menendez Metaxakis, that's what we saw with the renovationists, what we see today as well. Uh, the, uh, the, the Bolsheviks saw that there were people who wanted to climb the ladder. They wanted, they used the passions and the ambitions of the worldly clerics to undermine and manipulate and ultimately infiltrate and control the church. That's what their program was, and they were pretty successful at it, uh, right up to Sergianism. Uh, they made allies with ecclesiastical dissidents and those of like spirit. They supported the vulgar renovationists and reformers, those people who were seeking a protection from persecution. Right? They wanted a habeas corpus. They wanted guard guarantee against arrest. And that's what they, why they joined the uh, renovationists. Uh, they were uh, ideological modernists. They were uh, uh, those who were uh, ideologues of renovationism that ended up being associated with the secret service, secret police. Basically, careerists, those who hold the purse, sought the money, the Judases, the opportunists. Now, these always exist. They're all, the people are free to choose the fashions, and they do in every generation. There's always apostates in our in, in the church in every generation. There's people in the world. We're all potentially Judases ourselves. Only by the grace of God and our continual repentance and continual prayer, continual self-accusation, uh, do we resist and fall and not fall into the, the, the uh, traps of the enemy. It's a constant ascetic struggle. It's narrow to enter into the kingdom of God. So there are those who don't walk that narrow path and they end up in apostasy. So I want to just remember this very good uh, example for all of us going forward, uh, a, a comparison of the living church experience with the authentic church experience of the day. I think it's instructive for us today as well. So I'm going to read it again, bring it kind of summarized. This is a pretty important point in practice here. It gives us some signs for us some signposts that say on the way here, but we don't fall into delusion. So this is one of the those who actually have been part of the renovationists. He was a very important uh, historian of the Russian church, uh, called him a walking memoir. You'll remember this from our, I think it was our third or fourth lesson. And he says, my experience, which he thought it was an ideal church community, he said, it was the 1920s in Petrograd. This is a renovationist parish. Sermons were delivered not only on Sundays as before the revolution, but on weekdays as well. In many churches, one or two days a week would be set aside for serious theological lectures, discussions, and debates. Kind of reminds you of the, what does it remind you of? The Salon, right? The Salon, we're going to see that in a minute. Uh, going to the, uh, have a cup of coffee and talking and talking and talking, as if this is some kind of great virtue of the Christian. Uh, certainly, there are, there, there's a need for catechism. Certainly, there's a need for uh, theological education, no doubt. But is this the aim? Is this the, is this the heart of the Orthodox Christian tradition life? Of course not. Uh, and one just has to look briefly at the lives of the saints, briefly at the life of the monks of Mount Athos, and we'll see that this is not this 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 uh, speculate, speculative theology, sitting with the armchair, smoking uh, and, and drinking. It's not the Orthodox way. Uh, these debates, discussions between the clerics, the la lady after brief services, which benches and chairs will be put up in the churches. Practically every church had at least one such popular priest preacher or priest teacher around whom believers flocked until these priests disappeared in the prisons in the late 1920s and early 30s. 
so that's interesting because the, as you, you people might have missed, the renovationists eventually got thrown into prison as well. They got exiled as well, right? There, there was no salvation from the Bolsheviks. They were using all of you. And that's exactly what's going on today. The poor, poor clerics who have now become tools of the new world order of the great reset folks of the uh, banksters, uh, the worldwide banking system and all the rest, all these people who give themselves over to trust and believing and serving uh, what they think is a legitimate authority today. Much of it is a, of a perversion and a distortion uh, and not a true service to the people of God. Uh, you see that again and again. I mean, anybody who's paying attention, you're living in Australia, you're down in Melbourne. How's it going? You feel like you've got some representatives that really love the people, or what do you think? Do we have a bunch of totalitarian uh, uh, cranks who are trying to destroy any kind of semblance of democracy and using the, the uh, COVID-ism as a tool for political control? It seems fairly obvious for anybody who's alive that this is what's going on, and there's a creeping, if not a racing, totalitarianism around the world. So... The poor ones who will be used by this, uh, the system today. And anybody who thinks there's no system is just naive. But look at history. Look at what we've, we've gone through for the last uh, 10 weeks and what we've looked at in the 40 years or 30 years there uh, that we looked at. Uh, what, what did we see? But, of course, an organized system of manipulation and control. And... If we think that that's not going on today, it's just going on today with a much, much more deceptive way. Now, they don't have to do it with uh, a bloody reprisal and a bloody putting down of, of, of people and sending them to exile and, and all the rest. They have the technological tools to do it without any of that. And they can imprison us in our homes, as they've done for the last year and a half. So let's wake up and see that we're not that, that much different. The 1920s in 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 in, in, uh, in Russia, uh, in terms of the spiritual reality of what's going on in the world today, and those who allow themselves to be used and buy into that worldly spirit, well, they will be they will be thrown out eventually. The system will not respect them for their offerings, and God forbid that we be among them. Uh, now, this is the church experience, the so-called Tikhonite church experience, which, of course, is the church, Orthodox Church in Russia. This was the phrase used by the Antichrist. Uh, the nostalgic account of Orthodox practice under persecution services conducted by Archpriest Sergius Goloschapov, when, together with many others, he was shot in the Boltova firing range in 1937 in the Holy Trinity Church in Nikitniki, Moscow. You know I hate when I the but, when I butcher these. I just hate it. Uh, quote: The electric light did not strike your eyes as the temple was lit only by candles and icon lamps. Anybody who followed our course on the divine liturgy, remember that. Those of you who joined us last fall, the divine liturgy, remember that the day we talked about. Uh, well, we were quoting from an article: "The Desert Fathers and Ourselves." We were talking about the all the symbolism in the church. Does this remind you of anything? Go back, take a, take a look at that. Uh, in uh, Crowdcast there, you can look at all that material that I posted there, and you can see how important that is. And here they're living that. How important all, all of it is. The whole package is so important for to draw us into prayer and communion with God. 
which were put out at a certain moment of the service and then lit again, just like on Mount Athos, by the way, in accordance with the church rule. On major feasts, we celebrated all night vigils. And they didn't mean the three-hour services that we do today in church services. What do they mean? This meant our worship at 10 and, st- and went to 5 or 6 in the morning. That's it. That's an Athenite, almost an Athenite vigil. I mean, not the major feast days uh, when they have vigil that go from 8 in the evening till 10 in the morning. That's not. But but many of the vigils for the lesser feasts are about 6 to 8 hours, even on Athos. So, that's what they're doing. They're actually doing all night vigils. That's pretty amazing. Although the mediocrity of our external worship on great festivals was absolutely evident. Obviously, they didn't have professional janitors or something like that. So we didn't see it. We didn't even notice it because we were so wrapped up in prayer. The warmth of joint prayer transformed everything. Our poverty manifests itself in the form of wealth, and our souls were filled with radiant joy. So there you go. Do you see any lecture going on, any debates? Anybody sitting around with a with a uh, cup of coffee or a gin with a cigarette? Is that what's going on here? No. This is Athos in Russia. This is the Hesychast tradition. This is the Katanikdiki Parados, if we say in Greek. Right? There it is on display. Very important. That's a lesson for us all. What are we looking for? What is the church life all about? This points us in the right direction. Now, the people are the protectors of the faith. Very important point. We've actually just uploaded a excerpt from this lecture, but I'm going to reiterate this because many of us are being sold this idea. We're going to get into this again. I'm going to repeat myself, but it's very important. Blind obedience. Blind obedience to us, the ones who wear black. Is that the orthodox way? Not only is there blind obedience now being asked of us to the black wearers of black, but there's blind obedience to those who wear white, the doctors. Doctors. This is the line that we're seeing all over Greece today. And, of course, there's always partial truth, right? There's always part of it is true. The Holy Scriptures say that we should run to the doctors. Doctors are a thing of God. It's true. Is every doctor a thing of God, uh, uh, sent by God? Is every doctor interested in our health? Is every scientist interested in health? Should we be blindly obedient to every scientist? Should we be blindly obedient to every cleric? None of that is a part of the Orthodox tradition. All of it presumes that we have an experience of God. We have pre- We have the... Uh, discernment, because we are struggling spiritually to understand, is this person faithful to the holy tradition? Is this doctor actually a quack doctor or a real doctor? Is he really understand what he's talking about? When you have something like COVIDism, you have a lot of doctors who are saying, yeah, it's okay, it's great. And you have a lot of doctors who say, no, it's not. So there's even debate in the, in the big debate going on among many doctors and scientists as to what the health of these vaccines the safety of them, and you have bishops who are saying blind obedience. They the people in the, many people in <clears throat> in these institutions that are putting these things out aren't even calling for blind obedience. They're calling for the uh, vaccine to be given to those who have need. So, so it's amazing to witness. It's amazing to witness. So, this is a response to that. The people are the protectors of the faith, and these stories. I want you to go back to this. Um, these slides, I don't remember which, uh, I think it's like four, maybe the third or fourth uh, lecture, and see the, see all of them. I'm just giving you an excerpt here. Very important for us. This is one of the biggest problems we have in the church today. We have people who say, well, whatever the bishop says, whatever the priest says, whatever the theologian says, why and where did you get this idea? What made, There's no infallible voice in the church except in council. 
Concept in a ecumenical or a local council which has been deemed by the church's conscience throughout church history over time to be expressing the Orthodox faith. <clears throat> so it doesn't matter if the patriarch stands up. He's not an infallible voice. We don't have infallible popes in, our, in the Orthodox Church. All of us are, is incumbent upon all of us to bow down and worship at the feet of Christ and to bring everything there. And, and, and through the synodical, conciliar nature of the church for things to be worked out. I'm getting off topic. We've got a lot of things to cover. But we have to remember that those who resisted the Bolsheviks, those who stood up, were the faithful, the people. As this excerpt from this study says, parishioners responded to this threat by driving the movement from the holy ground. And that's probably a typo there. Driving the, uh, I guess, the Bolsheviks or those who were coming after them from the holy ground of the church building, denouncing renovationism as a heresy, the movement of renovationism, I think. Uh, denouncing renovationism as a heresy, They've gone so far as to say it's a heresy. So some today, people today are saying, you know, what's going on here? Is this a heresy or not? We got COVIDism. Is it a heresy? We'll talk about whether what aspects could be considered heresy or not. But it's not that important if we call it a heresy or not. It's an innovation. It's a distortion. But we'll get back to that in a minute. The announcement of renovation was a heresy that had, been, had to be expunged, lest it defile the holy faith. They did not stop after liberating a specific church from renovations apostles. Their goal was nothing less than the reclaiming of every parcel of Orthodox ground from the traitors of the, to the faith. Oh, where are these faithful today? Where are we need these faithful today? Rise up and throw off the shackles of delusion uh, that have, have been thrown upon the people of God. Um, the renovationists imploded because of the res response of the uh, people of God. And of course, they rightly, the saints at the time, as we say, as, as you can see here of St. Peter, the higher martyr, considered it a greater threat to the church than the Soviet government's physical persecutions. Uh, the, uh, the struggle, of course, was spiritual and it was a great distortion. It's always worse internal. The internal persecution is always worse. Internal persecution is always worse, and it's always more of a threat to the church, uh, and we have to pay attention to that. Um, the Soviet agenda. There's two, two words in the Soviet agenda here. Again, their, their agenda was to confiscate churches and give them to the renovationists. Not unlike some things that are going on in the church today. We have confiscation in Ukraine of Orthodox temples uh, given over to the pseudo-church uh, under the uh, schismatic, the schematic pseudo-church. Uh, and it's, we have people who are being persecuted, thrown out of their churches. We have that kind of distortion going on today in a more unsystematic way. But this was one thing that was going on in the days of the Soviets. Uh, they wanted the internal distortion. They wanted the reform movements. They wanted to work from then. And there's a great saying from a contemporary confessor in, in Athens. He says, today the aim of the New World Order people, if, if you don't like that phrase, that's fine. Many of us are not well read on all the literature, and so that sounds like some kind of conspiracy theory. Whatever you want to call it, if you actually pay attention and you listen, it's term used all the time by the globalist elite who want 
to transform the world into some kind of technocracy. So it's not a phrase that's uh, not been used by many people today. We have uh, the same thing going on. He said they don't want to destroy the churches. They don't want the churches to exist to exist. They want to fill the churches with people who have no orthodox phronema, no orthodox outlook, no orthodox ethos. They want to fill the churches with those who are not uh, basically of the church. They want the churches to continue to exist. They want. They don't want the church to, to, to cease to exist. They want it to be co-opted. They want it to be distorted. They want it to be perverted and used for the manipulation of the people. That's what's going on today. Same thing going back on in the days of the Bolsheviks. Many of the same techniques at work. Now, one of the keys here, and I want to point this out, the reality of the life on the ground in any particular time and place is largely the fruit of the intellectual, spiritual plans of men of previous generations. And it's not an accident. And what we're living today is not some kind of accident. Oh, there was this sudden outburst. And now there's, there's a sudden outburst of totalitarianism. And it's all just suddenly accidental. There's no accidents, friends. The salons of the first decades of the 20th century were the hothouses in which the seeds of revolution were cultivated and prepared for planting. The present intellectual and spiritual darkness under which we presently are suffering is either a spontaneous event or an accident of history. But the workings out of the plans of demonically inspired, quote-unquote, Bolsheviks of today, today's Bolsheviks, today's Soviets, today's Salons, right? They're being worked out into, in, the, in the various uh, Marxist professors' offices and university campuses around the world. They're being worked out in secret societies. They're being worked out in deep state officials. They're being worked out in banking in the bank with the banking elites. Uh, that this is not nothing's an accident here. We're not living through some kind of uh, accident of history. It is obvious that there has been a plan. It's been worked out. It's been shown. It's just that most people don't care. Most people don't pay attention. Most people don't have the time to pay attention, and they go on about their life and they can't be bothered. And of course, their lives are many times radically changed or destroyed because they couldn't be bothered when it, when it was time to be bothered. And you, people say this about, you know, the, even the, the far, anyone today will say, well, that, that was exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. Nobody could be bothered to deal with Hitler. You know? Whatever is politically correct to say that, they apply it. But if you say, well, that's actually happening today. No, 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 no. That's just happened back in the, no, this is not, this is not 1918 in Russia. This is not 1932, 35 in Germany. No, it can never happen again. It, ha it has and it is happening, and we need to wake up and see it is happening. Yesterday in Russia, today in America. Now, let's look at the, let's look at the Solovki Memorandum, another key, key uh, milestone in our 10-week course. Uh, the church recognizes the following. This is very important. The utter incompatibility of the church's teaching with what it calls, what is called communism. All right? So there's, there's, Total, utter incompatibility between communism, Bolshevikism, socialism, secularism, and the church. Now, if we understand that, we immediately are going to be in a position, and we understand what that means, and what, this is an example of the, the Father's given us here, we're going to be in a position to understand and immediately spot the renovationist of our day. Spot the, the, the totalitarian movements of our day. And listen to what the Fathers say here. 
Church recognizes the spiritual principles of existence. Communism rejects them. The church believes in the living God, the creator of the world, the leader of its life and destinies. Communism denies its existence. How many atheists, most of the people who are in the, who are in, the in the box talking to you, coming through Facebook throughout the world, they are of this ilk. If not ideologically, practically, in reality, they're atheists. All right? So they're presenting to you a false worldview. Immediately, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you turn them off. You throw them out. You resist that narrative because they're not of God. It's very simple. It's that black and white, believe it or not. Now, you could say, well, I'm going to discern. Yeah, okay, if you think you got a blessing, discern. You, for some purpose that's going to be helpful to others, you spend your time trying to analyze, discern. For the vast majority of us, brothers and sisters, we don't have time for that. We don't have time of the day to spend listening to the talking heads and the boxes to figure out what we need to do. We need to look at the lives and things. We have little time available to us with our children, with our schools, with our offices, with all the rest that we can devote to obtaining the mind of Christ in the front of the church. So we need to be more strict and ascetic in our approach to the information that we digest throughout our day. Communism denies the Lord's existence, of course. Atheist. The church assumes that the purpose of human life is the heavenly fatherhood, fatherland. Even if she lives in conditions of the highest development of material culture and general well-being, communism refused to recognize any other purpose of mankind's existence but material welfare. In the future, with the Antichrist, there will be a quote-unquote gospel and a quote-unquote church which will embrace that, that it's this world and we need to be saved in this world from the threats of this world and without recognition that there is an eternal life. And so the eschatological stance of Orthodox Christians will be jettisoned in that pseudo-church when those days come. And we may be close. We may actually have a generation, a generation or two until that. I don't know. God knows. But a lot of speculation. Communism refuses to recognize any other purpose of mankind's existence but military warfare. I want you to remember that. That's what's going on today. The ideological differences between the church and the state descend from the apex of philosophical observations to the practical spheres of ethics, justice, law. Communism considers them to be a conditional result of class struggle. Exactly what's going on today with the critical race theory, exactly what's going on today with all that with the movement in America, pitting Races against races and ages against ages and rich against poor. It's totally in that paradigm of the Marxist. Uh, and assesses the phenomenon of the moral sphere exclusively in terms of utility. This is the contemporary sphere as well. This is what's going on around us today. The church preaches love and mercy, communism, camaraderie, and merciless struggle. So it's us against them. Church instills in believers humility, which elevates the person. Communism debases man by pride. What is, by the way, when we say communism, don't think only Lenin and Marx, okay? Think uh, the atheist stance in life, because actually the spirit and the mentality that was well going, was alive and well in Soviet Russia is alive and well in the West and much of the world today. Certainly China and other places, it is actually the, 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 the dominating ideological and spiritual stance that has existed in the world today. Uh, so in the West, they had a different methodology, but the same end, which was to make man extremely egotistical and self-centered, 
and was very effective in that through propaganda and through uh, the, the various passions and the lusts and technology and all the rest. It's going on very well today. The church preserves chastity of the body and sacredness of reproduction. Sacredness of reproduction against the killing of infants, the killing of babies in the womb. Uh, all, most, if, if not the vast majority of, uh, if not all of the uh, various uh, invasive uh, anti-conception devices and all the rest, the church is against that. The church is for the, produ- the, the, the continuation of the human race and, and for the sacredness of human life. Communism sees nothing else in marital relations but satisfaction of the instance. Church sees in religion a life-bearing force which serves as the source of all the greatness of man's creativity. Communism sees religion as opium. Church wants to see religion flourish. Communism wants its death, etc., etc. All right. So the very soul of the church, the condition of her existence, and the sense of her being is that which is categorically denied by communism. In other words, atheism. In other words, uh, secularism and all, all the various isms that go along. And, and, you know, everything flows ultimately from secularism, from the spirit of Antichrist. Now, we've said that. We've, we've explained that. We, we've been... Now, protected against that. Now, let's go on to the more subtle renovationist, which is the Sturgeonist version, and the Kessero-Papism, which is alive and well in our day as well. Now, this is essentially submission to secular authority. We have that today. We have bishops who are bowing down before the presidents of their country, saying, whatever you like, sir. You want us to, you want us to change the time of, of Pascha for no apparent reason? Let it be blessed. You want us to shut down the churches? Let it be blessed. You want us to put mass on in the holy altar? Let it be blessed. You want us to 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 to, to drive people out of the church because social distancing? Let it be blessed. All in the name of the health of the body. What about the health of the soul? What about the salvation of the soul? I thought death wasn't the worst thing for the Orthodox Christian. I thought death of the soul was the worst thing. I thought the church was the source of all healing. I thought Christ was the healer of man, man's body and soul. Why are we shutting down the churches? Why are we throwing people out? Because we have Kessler papism. We have a submission of the church to the secular authorities in a blind and disgusting manner. We have division, fruit of the devil's work. This is what the fruit of Kessler papism is. Seen today. We have double talk, compromises, fruit of the devil's work. Seen today. Not possible to do a good thing. In a bad way. This is the basic techn- uh, methodology of the Orthodox Church. We say you can't do a bad, a good thing in a bad way. You can't do a good thing in a bad way. All right. You can't build the church by compromising with the Bolsheviks, which Paul insurgents. You cannot build the church, save the church, keep the church, whatever it is, by submitting all the church's freedom and living a lie. That's not going to happen. It's not going to be beautiful. It's a really basic thing. And yet we have bishops today who are celebrating Metropolitan Sergius as saving the church. He was necessary. We had to do it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And you actually destroyed many, many human lives uh, physically because the Bolsheviks, of course, used that as a litmus test and sent many to exile and to death and to execution. Unbelievable that today, after all that we know, going back with the opening of the of the uh, uh, KGB files, all we know of the distortion of the church through the, through the, this compromise, and yet there are people who are still saying we had to do it. No, of course we cannot say that as Orthodox Christians. Delusional. If they reject it out of hand, you cannot do a good thing in a bad way. 
You cannot have a lie be at the foundation of the church and church life. Lies of any sort and man-pleasing of any sort, politically correct, acceptable stances cannot be the basis of the Orthodox Church. We have manifestly erroneous statements made for the sake of the state's agenda. Manifestly erroneous statements made for the sake of the state's agenda. What do we have today, right? We have the same thing today. We have the same thing today. We have bishops in favor of mandatory vaccination. Manifestly lie, uh, false, erroneous ideas. The church could never embrace, but for the sake of the state, for the sake of the health of the people, supposedly. Is it? Is there actually, is there a basis for that? There are many people who say that that's not even true. It's going to bring death and destruction through the vaccines. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to be the last word on this, but there are many who, who are, who are doctors or scientists who are coming out and saying the same thing. So at least the bishops should say, we, they're telling us to listen to the, Listen to the doctors. Some of us are listening to doctors that don't agree with you. What do you do then? Because you don't allow the state and science to, to rule the church and to guide the church. Right? That's the problem. At the base, we have Kestrel papism that leads to all of this and destroys the, the freedom of the church. We have bishops equating the vaccine with the light and with life and avoiding vaccine with selfishness and death. This is the kind of manifestly erroneous statements made for the sake of in, in large part, for the state's agenda. This is what appears to be the case. Now, people can debate that. You can say, no, Father Peter, I don't agree with you. That's fine. Okay. That's my view. Let's go on. Um, we see from Sergianism, as we said here, ecclesiastical division, as Mr. Father Peter points out to him. You have brought about ecclesiastical division. What does that tell us? Your, your statements, your movements, papal Indeed, bring about the vision. Well, that's not of God. God does not divide the faithful. God does not introduce division. The devil always divides. That's his main goal. Here from St. Erotheos. This is a, when he was in prison. Picture from when he was in prison, I think. And we have a crooked path of diplomatic double talk, agreements, compromises. Right. That's, that's characteristic of the renovationist, surgeonist stance. Uh, he bound the church to the civil authority, expressing spiritual submission to it. Uh, from the new higher martyr of Damascene, Metropolitan Sergius and those with him are enslaved by a terrible fantasy. The fantasy that it is possible to build the church on man-pleasing and untruth, like we just said. But we affirm that, it, that a lie can only give birth to a lie. And that it cannot be the foundation of the church, indeed. Before our eyes, we have the shameful part of the church of the evildoers, renovationism. All right. Are we going to learn that lesson today? Are we going to repeat it with other renovationism? What is going on with this whole COVIDism? It's a renovationism. It's a jettisoning of what the saints tell us, what it means to be in the temple of God, what it means, what is the, uh, the holy relics, what is the grace of God, how does grace of God work? We, we are ignoring the lives of the saints and their witness. We, we have many things. Go to orthodoxethos.com and you can check out many of the witnesses there to the grace of God in the temple, the stance of the saints in the temple. That's what we're called for and called to. Instead, we have a rationalistic, scientistic, uh, worldly, casserole papism that's going on in the church, directing Orthodox Christians to act like they're no different whatsoever from the worldly minded. We have no other, no, we have no difference 
Whatever they do, we do. Follow lockstep. Don't differ from the secularist atheists around you. As if we have no idea what the church temple is about. As if we have no idea what the saints have done in the face of these, these things in the past. It's a complete degradation to the community of the church. Indeed, we've wavered in our faith as well in the omnipotence of the all-conquering truth in the omnipotence of God. I think there's some, in, spiritually, there's some very close similarities to what they went through with what we do today. Now you're going to say, well, not to the degree, not to the, there wasn't the bayonet at our, at our neck. Of course, we understand that. But there are many lessons to learn, even on this level. And we don't know where things are going to end up. I hope to God that we have an intervention of God. We'll talk about it at the end of this session today. We are already one hour and ten minutes in, and I want to I get through all of it. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, now, Hiram St. Victor, again, the question of Serginus, lessons from the renovation of Serginus stance. What do the saints do? This is what we're looking for, looking for our lessons here tonight. The ruinous destruction of the Orthodox Church that was beginning by administrative means. That sounds familiar. We have administrative changes going on. We have top-down, small groups of hierarchs who are imposing on the whole church. We'll talk about that in a minute. Sounds familiar. Uh, we have untruth, right? That is at the base of this whole approach. Um, all right, let's move on because I can't get into a lot of that. Now, this is the statement that is just below, just, just mind-boggling, made at the height of the persecution, 1930, three years after, three years after his innovation, People are being sent off. There's tons of, he knows all these bitches have been sent off to the, to the gulag. And yet he comes out and says, there's never been persecution. They went, to, they're anti-government. That's what happened to these people. And he says, they can't understand that there's no going back. Sound familiar? No going back. The old life is gone. Can't return. You have to accept the new normal. Except the new normal, right? There's no return to the old. You must become obedient disciples of the Soviet state. Today, you must become obedient disciples of the new world order. You have to become obedient disciples of the Great Reset. You have to become obedient disciples of the new, new normal. COVID way of life. Jump in and lockstep, just walk. Well, as you've been watching, I'm sure all of you are paying attention. There is wide uprising throughout the world right now. We have massive marches going on in Spain, France, and in Greece. Tens of thousands of people come out on the streets, actually tomorrow night, again, in the streets here in Greece. People are saying, no, it's a lie. We don't want to move on to your new normal. There's no need for that. It's all built on lies. So I think there's some similarities here. I think there's some lessons here. The compromised deluded and worldly, tell us lies. And they go on to tell us obedience to the state, Kessler-Papism, and they go on to tell us we can't go to, we can't continue on in our, in our normal way of life. What does this mean? Does this mean we're going to shut down the churches again? We're going to avoid the icons again? Are you serious? Are there Orthodox Christians out there who really want to do that? I can't imagine anybody after this could, who could still be believing in these uh these superficial lies about the need for lockdown. 
didn't work, didn't help. There's no differences. Look at the statistics. If you did a lockdown, you didn't. Texas, there's no difference, folks. There is a big, fat propaganda going on to get people to a certain point in this Marxist dialectic crisis, reaction, and new solution, new normal. Get us into a new way of life. Forget the old ways. Forget the orthodox uh, way of life. Step by step, let's keep people far from the mysteries. Do you know that in many parishes here in Greece, we're still got all these measures that they're imposing on us. Greece is one of the worst countries in Europe in terms of all this insanity. More lockdowns, more uh, forced vaccinations of certain people in the governmental agency going on. And I know a personal story just came from somebody who's uh, close to a priest here. He's, he was actually he was actually suspended because he wasn't putting the measures in. And then he was forced to put the measures in. And the people cut down by 70%. In other words, if there were 100 people in church before this, there's 30 in church today. The bishop, does he, does he care about the people? He just drove them all away. Literally emptied his church. And this is going on all over Greece. They're fine with new. Apparently, they're fine with a new way of things. They don't have a problem driving people away from the church. They, I, there was another bishop who just came out and said, you don't have a mask? Stay home. Okay, so you just drove out a portion. I don't know. It could be 10%. could be 30 50%. I don't know. Depends on the parish. You just drove out your parishioners. I thought you were the shepherd of the flock. I thought you wanted to care for them and bring them to salvation. What's wrong? What's wrong here? There's no return to the old, folks. We've just got to move on. Sergius in 1930, our contemporary surgeon is today. Significance of the Catacomb Church, let's remind ourselves, lest we get off into legalism and worldliness, on the right and the left, standard bearer of faithfulness to Christ. Freedom of the church. We have to have a different attitude to the church. With this whole attitude, this whole stance, this whole... Uh, outlook on the church, this legalistic, worldly outlook that's going on both on the left and the right, both among the extreme ecumenists and the extreme COVIDists, and also, unfortunately, on the extreme hypocrites and Pharisees on the right. What's it, What's the key? What the, what unites them who've fallen off the royal path? That they don't trust God. They don't have faith. Everything is based on trust in the church. Everything is based on faith. Who do you trust? You trust, as they say, the great miracle of COVID vaccinations. We, they trust the, the doctor. You have to trust the doctors, generally the doctors. Is that really what the Lord says? Undiscerning, blind obedience. I don't think so. Trust the government. Trust your, your Masonic-led presidential authorities. They're all, many of them are all initiated in the Masonic Order. That's, it's not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. That's obvious. It's plain, in plain sight. Pay attention. This is not a conspiracy theory. Where we put our trust, this is the key. Was it with God or with man? With God, his saints, the grace of God in the temple, or with science and government? And you might say, well, why one or the other? Well, not always one or the other, of course, but sometimes there is one or the other. And right now it's one of those cases where we have a government and a scientism and a, an establishment that wants to impose its whole will on the inner life of the church. And therefore, 
you have to trust God or man. You can't, you can't have two masters. Faithfulness and legalism go hand in hand. Sergius did nothing canonically wrong. He was lawful. Right. Well, I think he's not. But I think there was actually canons, but that's what they were saying. And the current covetists are generally correct. They're correct, right? I mean, it does say to trust the doctors, right? If you just superficially examine what they're saying, it does say to trust the doctors. But does it say trust the doctors? Period. Or and blindly, just like we're supposed to trust blindly the bishops? No. No, it doesn't, actually. There are many bishops who are heretics. We just went through the renovationists. If I had a renovationist priest in 1923 Russia, should I just have blindly followed that renovationist priest in a delusion? Of course not. And we said the people were the ones who protected him and drove them out. So again and again in church history, blind obedience is not what is called for. It's never been embraced. And the same thing goes with blind obedience to doctors, how much more? So the current COVIDists are correct, lawful and obedient, and yet they're not correct. They're not truly uh, obedient to God. Uh, and this is the crisis. All right, let's move on. we got a lot to cover. Now, St. Cyril's response to metropolitan surges. He has a non-legalistic orthodox understanding of church life and living and proclaiming the truth in the church unity. Today, we have a major problem. The identification of the church with the hierarchy. We say the church, we mean the hierarchy. The church, we mean the archbishop or even the patriarch or, or a temporary 12-member synod. We have that as well, right? Look what St. Cyril says. You, this proceeds, of course, from the fact that you and the synod understand a negative attitude to your activity in church administration to be a denial of the church yourself. So that's what he was saying. He's saying, you are against me, you are against the church. That's exactly what all the papists say. We're against what all the, all the various papists, whether inside or outside the church, say. You're against me, you're against the church. You are not the church, Metropolitan Surges. You are not the church, Bishop so-and-so, Patriarch so-and-so. The church is the whole body and the infallible voices in council. And only when you're following the Holy Fathers and obedient to the Holy Tradition and, and, and humble before the saints, not just of previous times, which you can manipulate their words, but contemporary saints, holy elders, ascetics, admit, for God's sake, worldly priests who are not ascetics, people who don't fast and pray, that you don't have the authority. Authority comes through experience in the Orthodox Church. Run to those who have authority. I heard bishops just this last week. Tell those abbots on Manathos and those monks to mind their own business. Don't listen to those abbots and monks in Monathus who are telling us not to take the jab, not to take the vaccine. All right. So that bishop and every bishop who rejects the witness and the counsel of the contemporary ascetics and fathers and strugglers, whatever they are, they might not be the same as other ages. It doesn't matter. We're not doing that. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, folks. We're not struggling like they are. We're not praying and fasting night and day. We're not in church 10 hours a day, six hours a day, five hours, whatever it is. We're not doing it. So who are we going to trust? We trust the people who have experienced the grace of God. What is wrong with this picture? You are on a path of destruction, bishop, priest, so-and-so, if you don't listen to the contemporary hesychast ascetics and strugglers in the church. We all have to submit to them doesn't matter if you're a bishop. There's nothing magical about being a bishop that makes you impervious to delusion. 
fact, there are many bishops who are in delusion today because they're ecumenists. So this is a major problem. We have a 12-member synod here in Greece. For the last two years, there's been no hierarchy called because of COVID. Can't, can't get together because of COVID. So for two years, all the decisions pertaining to COVID were made by 12-member bishops. All the rest, the 60, 70 other bishops, are not involved in decision-making. So everything you hear, the church speaking, that's not the church, it's 12 bishops. The 12 bishops in Athens have told us the church has spoken. No, it hasn't. Delusional. We are in delusion. But it's even worse in other places. We have archbishops who say, I will force you to do my will. And he's talking to other bishops. We have an archbishop who is saying to his other bishops, you will be vaccinated. Who are you? Where did you get this authority? Are you insane? What is wrong with you? Nobody gave you this authority. This is not even an ecclesiastical issue. Before, six months ago, we heard from these same people, priests, don't get involved. It's not a spiritual issue. It's for the doctor. And now we have these same people coming to us and telling us, you must be vaccinated. I thought you said don't get involved. I thought it was a doctor who was going to tell us if we should be vaccinated or not. The hypocrisy is phenomenal. It's, out, it's off the charts hypocrisy. The royal path, avoiding extremes of declaring mysteries graceless. This is another example our St. Cyril gives us. He says, I cast away from myself the idea of the absence of grace and the sacred actions and mysteries performed by the surgeonists. He calls them surgeonists. And he says, says, they're not graceless. We have our poor, poor man on the right who's constantly calling the mysteries graceless without any kind of synodical decision and not following St. Cyril, not following Father Sarah from Rose, insisting he knows better than the saints. He's on the right. He's a super correct. He's super orthodox. And yet he knows better than the saints. This is the kind of delusion you have. People think they're going to be zealous and the zealousness is going to guarantee them a path to heaven. You can be zealous, not according to knowledge, according to St. Paul. All those people who are persecuting St. Paul, they were zealous Jews. They were the Judaizers who he said they preached another gospel, and yet they were in the church. Do not think because you're in the church, you can't fall away from the church. And still, because the church has all these, uh, you know, lack of canonical order, you're never going to be defrocked. You're never going to be suspended. Does it mean you're not in delusion? If you're spouting things that are not in agreement with the Holy Fathers, you're in delusion. It's very, very simple. They're the test. The royal path. This is what he's pointing us to. Against the extremes of papalism and Protestantism in the church. There's two extremes. The royal path. Conceal your decisions. This is where the Orthodox Church solves all its problems. Royal path of ceasing commemoration without moving an inch further and assuming the synodical voice of the church. This is what St. Cyril teaches us. Another lesson for the Christians of the last times. Again, I'm going to repeat it. The royal path of, it's possible, cease commemoration of your own bishop. That's what the canon said. No other bishop. No other bishop. Your own bishop. Cease commemoration. Not cut communion with everyone and everything. Not cease commemoration of everyone and everything. Not write off everybody and anything because they're not condemning. This is, none of this is in the, in the Holy Church. This is not what St. Cyril did. He didn't even deny the mysteries of, of surginess at that time. Later on, he has a little bit, changes his tune a little bit, but not much. He doesn't really leave that basic principle. So he does it without moving an inch further. And he says, the church will decide in council. You're going to see this again and again. Let's move on. St. Peter, three years after Sergius, 
faithful remaining outside the walls, reminding me of people who came to me and said, what do we do? Father, the marriage is total innovators. They're using multiple spoons. Everybody's with a mask. I can't deal with it. I can't see it. It's scandalizing me. What do I do? I said, go and sit outside the wall. Sit outside the door of the chapel, of the church. Sit outside the window. Do what you have to do to be faithful and let them to the judgment of God. None of your business. Let them do what they're going to do. They're going to do it. Let them be. But you be faithful. Reminds me of this. We're in a similar situation where we're in very uncharted territories in terms of what does the church do in reaction and response to these innovations and these delusions about the grace of God, the mysteries and all the rest, and making the church into a supermarket. It's a supermarket, folks. You go with a mask, a supermarket, you go with a mask with church. There's no difference, right? You can get sick there, you can get sick here. No faith, there's no faith involved. There's no grace involved. Just the same old approach wherever you are. That's not the Orthodox way. St. Cyril, five years later, St. Cyril, five years later, on the royal path again, resisting the neo-papalism and authoritarianism of Sergius. We need to resist the neo-papalism and authoritarianism of many bishops today. They've lost their way. They think they're little popes. They think they can push people around and shove them out of the church on the basis of non-ecclesiastical criteria. There's no ecclesiastical criteria or precedence or canon for a bishop to say to somebody who doesn't wear a mask, get out. There's no basis. You have no basis to tell anybody that. You are a tessero papist, whatever Kesseros says, whatever the doctors say. But that's not ecclesiastical criteria. You are not following the Holy Fathers. I'm not going to go into every uh, card. You can pause it. You can look at it on your own, read it on your own. I'm going to move on because we're going to have a lot of questions, I think, tonight. All right. Another, 1933, five years later again, he's on the royal path. Resistance of non-commemoration. A temporary measure. A temporary measure that leads to what? Where is it going? Canon 15, where does it end? All the people call on Canon 15, Canon 15. I, I, you have to... They say you have to cease commemoration of heretical. The canon doesn't say that. What's the point of the canon? To lead to where he says, a conciliar decision. That's the point of canon 15. That's the point of commemoration being ceased, to provoke the church to deal with the bishop or priest or patriarch who's teaching heresy. In council, that's where it all leads. All roads of resistance, if they're patristic, lead to a council. You don't think that? You don't think you need a council? You're not in the patristic way, folks. If you think it's all done because you have declared it so, you're in delusion. You're not following the Holy Fathers. Let's be on guard against the temptation on the right. It exists. Many people think there is no temptation on the right. I can go far right. I can become a zealot, not according to knowledge, and I'm okay. I'm not like those people. Sounds familiar? Those people, that's what the... Heresies, the, the, the Pharisees said, right? I'm not like that one, Lord. I give. I am arrived. Well, guess what? You're in delusion. You're in pharisaical delusion if you think there's no temptation on the right. 1934, six years later, he's on the royal path, St. Cyril. This is the path we want to be on. We cannot judge, he says, until a lawful council is called. You might say, well, that was 34. This is 2021. There's been no lawful counsel called. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is a grave error on the part of all of us, including many Orthodox, 
including many who are zealous and not equal knowledge. They don't even think it's necessary. They're all condemned. Who condemned them, folks? Who arrogated themselves to this position? Yes, it's very, very difficult. Yes, humanly speaking, there is no solution. I agree. And yet, there is always with God. It's always possible with God. And if you've lost that faith in the church, God help you. God help you. You don't know church history. You, haven't, you don't believe in the saints. You don't believe in the prayers of the saints. You don't believe in the prophecies of the saints. There will be a day when there will be an Orthodox Council, and they will come to, come to terms with the judgment of God, all those who innovated and departed from the narrow, narrow path of Orthodoxy. In the meantime, he says, we keep a distance. See that? On the one hand, we wait for a conciliar lawful counsel. Do not dare judge. We do not dare judge. This is humility. This is discernment. This is moderation, the royal path. And yet, we keep a distance. This is exactly what is going on in many places with the Orthodox Church today, among those who are struggling. Not many, unfortunately, but those who are struggling, they're doing exactly that. They keep a distance. Some cease commemoration, some do not. Their own bishop is not teaching heresy. There's no point in cease commemoration. It's, it's ridiculous. Oh, I have a bishop who confesses the Orthodox faith, and I'm going to declare him a heretic. What? Does not make any sense? There are Orthodox bishops in the Orthodox Church all over the place. They don't speak up like they should. Some of them do, some of them don't. But they're not teaching heresy. So why would you cease commemoration? Well, because they're in communion with somebody who teaches heresy. That's not patristic. The communicating vessels theory is not patristic ecclesiology. It's not there. It's a Protestant, rationalistic reading of patristic ecclesiology. And Canon 15 doesn't support it. St. Cyril doesn't seem to buy into that either, does he? He's not afraid of... His stance, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to be lost if I don't cease commemoration of everybody and everything. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Keep a distance in a variety of ways. 1933 and beyond, we have the following interesting quick references to this. What are the faithful doing? How are they dealing with this? The state and the and, and surginess are now hand-in-hand hand persecuting the faithful. Well, obviously, that's unprecedented. That's unbelievable. In 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 modern in church history for that kind of thing, atheist and a bishop to be working together, and yet it was so. There was unprecedented solutions, and we see here the witness here from the atheist brochure: underground private dwelling witness from the atheists themselves that the church went underground. Nineteen thirty-three, another witness. Nineteen thirty-five, wandering from village to village, priests going about. These are solutions if in times of tremendous persecution and unprecedented times of challenge to the church and its order. Obviously, many people don't get this. Oh, the order of the church does not allow you to go to another Orthodox country and consult with other priests and bishops about ecumenism. People, people charged, myself and others, who went to Georgia four years ago and met with the patriarch about the Cretan Council, you're anti-canonical because you're not supposed to go to another local church. Hey, guess what? When there's heresy, when there's delusion, when there's schism on the high horizon, those things aren't in effect. Just like in 1934, 1933 Russia. Obviously, there's going to be unprecedented solutions. Obviously, a strict, legalistic, canonical approach is not always going to be the right Orthodox Christian approach. This is one of the lessons we learned from the 1920s and 30s. Another lesson. There's going to be solutions that aren't canonically correct. 
And yet they're orthodox. That's what St. Cyril and Father Seraphim say again and again. And that's hard for people who are babes in the faith, who are legalists and want everything to, to fit tightly into their legalistic box. It doesn't work for them. Well, sorry, grow up. That's the way it is in the church. You've got to think outside the box sometimes. They're not always going to be exactly as, as, as things seem. We've got sometimes we're going to go underground. We're going to go village to village. We're not going to have a bishop that's going to teach us exactly here and there. So people who don't understand what we're living through, that's what they say. You're not being uh, faithful to the canon X, Y, or Z, but the spirit of the canon, but the reality of the canon. There's not going to be an answer for the legalists. They'll always have something to say. So we move on. Uh, another example. <clears throat> Secret church. But it had contact with what? Higher spiritual leaders, elders. So another totally uncanonical thing, but in the spirit of true orthodoxy. Because we're 1937, it's Soviet Russia. Now, I'm not saying that we have those kind of conditions today. I'm just saying that the spirit, look at the lesson, take the lesson here, and maybe it applies, maybe it doesn't. Everything needs discernment in the church. You can't say that it does apply or it doesn't apply absolutely across the board. Case by case, it may or may not apply. Let's look at Father Seraphim's now on the apostasy of our times. He is now discerning the true nature of the apostasy. Right? So what is that? So there's there's this approach that's externally correct, but essentially and spiritually strangers to the phonema of an ethos of the church. We just talked about this. Correct, but lacking the spirit of Christ. Right? So this is true on both the left and the right. We said this. False teachings do, do exist today, as then, but they are hard to pin down, and they are not developed by their holders. So he says that, that they're not necessarily heresy, right? If you're reading on the screen with me, the apostasy of our times to a degree unique in Christian history is proceeding not primarily, he's not saying it's not, but not primarily by false teachings or heresy or canonical deviations, but rather by a false understanding of orthodoxy on the part of those who may even be perfectly orthodox in their dogmatic teaching and canonical situation. A correct, quote-unquote, orthodoxy deprived of the spirit of true Christianity, this is the meaning of surgeon. Now, isn't that interesting? Why doesn't some of our friends who are on the right think about that and apply it to themselves? They might have a correct orthodoxy, but not have the spirit of Christianity. And then they, they're fighting surgeonism, and yet they're like surges. Is it impossible? No, it's not impossible at all. It's, po it's possible, and I think it's even happening in some cases. It's definitely happening on both extremes. It always does. They meet, the streams actually meet in their methodology and in their spirit, okay? They might be totally opposed ideologically, but they actually can meet in their spirit and in their methodology. So Father Seraphim's pointing out that we need more discernment, folks. You cannot superficially look at these things and judge. You need to have the discernment and follow the Holy Fathers. So we have today a new iconoclasm, right? We have a new iconoclasm. This is the kind of thing that's kind of oh, it's kind of murky. Is it really a how is it? It's not exactly the kind of, kind of yeah, the canon doesn't really apply, but the spirit of the canon is applying, right? People say there's a canon. It says, if you do not actually venerate the icon, you are anathema. Well, wait, 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 wait. that was because there was an ideological reason they didn't venerate the icon. As people say, yeah, but wait a minute. That's true. And yet the spirit of the canon and the, and the meaning of the canon, is it really that limited? Or is it that when you have a wholesale abandonment of, icon, uh, of venerated icons, you have a spirit that is foreign to orthodoxy? And therefore, there's something here that they're teaching us from the Seventh-day Council. But... 
I digress. We're getting off topic. A, a new iconoclasm has, has arisen in the church today. Don't venerate icons. Don't venerate relics. Don't venerate the priest's hand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we trust the doctors. We trust the scientists, not the saints. Right? Okay, this shouldn't be opposed. We have to have doctors. Absolutely, we all go to doctors. I went to a doctor last week. My wife's going to a doctor next week. But when and how? Not all doctors. Not every time, right? The rationalist approach to the mysteries, to the temple, to the holy things. This is what we see today. Right? This is an apostasy of our times, something similar in the sense of it's not fitting into straight categories. So we have to look at them and discern the spirit behind them. We have an irrationalism in the church life, implying that one can get corruption from the incorrupt, from the incorrupt spirit, from the incorrupt relics, from the incorrupt uh, sancti sanctified holy things in the church. We can get corruption. That's what's implied when they tell you, don't venerate, don't kiss. Don't approach. And then, of course, the multiple spoons is the worst. There's a bishop who's saying that we're actually spoon worshipers. <laughs> spoon worshipers. Do you get that? If we are against multiple spoons. Now, this is tragic that there is such, a, such an idea and a bishop that would say such nonsense. Obviously, the problem is not the material question but the reasons why you want to introduce five, six, ten spoons, 20, 50 spoons, why? Why do you want the spoons? Doesn't that play a role? Why is there even a need? Because people have lost faith in the incorruption of that mystery. They've lost faith in the body and blood of Christ. They're afraid that the spoon will get them sick. But the spoon is the conveyor. It's like the cross on which Christ was crucified. You're afraid to kiss the cross? You're afraid the cross is going to get you sick? You're afraid the spoon is going to get you sick? This is, this is ridiculous rationalism, extraordinary rationalism applied to the things of God. And of course, all heresies are rationalism at the end of the day, right? It's, it's, it's a loss of the hierarchy. The spirit is subjected to the rational intellect, and we become slaves of the mind. And we, be, and, and we don't ascend to heaven, we ascend to, the, to this height, and we're in delusion. So, the irrationalistic approach to the mysteries, that's what we're seeing today, in our day. Trying to apply the lessons here of Father Seraphim. Father Seraphim on St. Cyril's walking the royal path. Very important teaching. A temporary, extraordinary measure to maintain church freedom. Not an ecclesiastical statement per se. This is what we see here in this <coughs> uh, analysis. Father Mitchell and Sergius, as most rational intellectuals of our day, cannot make sense of the orthodox approach in response to the various heresies and isms of our day. Uh, but they're nothing but the balanced royal path of orthodox moderation between the extremes of renovationism and surgism, the legalism. Very important. He says legalism. Usually we think of usually we think of people who go to the quote unquote to the left, right? To go who go to who go to a uh, liberality or a, 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 uh, a laxity or worldliness. We don't think of them as legalists, but actually that's what it is. The renovationists and the surgeons are legalists, but so are the other ones on the far right. And he says on that on one hand, and then we have the too hasty accusation of surgeonist heresy. Well, the doesn't include doesn't even think it's heresy. I, I kind of am back and forth. I think there's aspects of it that are heretical in terms of ecclesiology. But you don't have to call it heresy if you want. It's fine. And a lack of grace 
right? Accusing him of, of gracelessness on the other. So the, the ones who accuse him of gracelessness or accuse the contemporary surgeonists and ecumenists of gracelessness because, of course, gracelessness, what do we mean? We mean in the mysteries. No one doubts that the people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who trample on the dogmas, who are teaching heresy bareheaded, personally have lost the grace of God. Anybody who falls into carnal sins, anybody who turns away from God and blasphemes them, they lose immediately the grace of God. It's the spiritual nature of things. And we have to repent. And only when we repent, and that's why the spiritual father gives people penances, quote-unquote penances. What does it mean? Time to cultivate and to be in repentance so that they're purified of the old, uh, of the heresy, the illusion, the, the blasphemy, right? So it's a process of healing. So that happens all the time without there being any canonical judgment on the part of the church. It happens within uh, spiritual father, spiritual son relationship. It happens immediately again when we fall. We, and we feel that. If you have a spiritual life, you feel when you have an evil thought or when you fall into judgment, you feel the lack of peace in your heart. That's a sign the grace of God has, has, has evaporated. So the, that is not in question. When, when we talk about a gracelessness, we mean the mysteries, but the mysteries don't belong to Sergius or anybody else, but to Christ. Christ is given and gives in the mysteries. So until there's a synodical condemnation, the infallible voice of the church is heard, and that particular unrepentant, called to repentance, and unrepentant heretic is anathematized, no one can doubt the mysteries of those who are still in the church and not brought to, brought to account, right? That's why he says again and again, St. Cyril, conceal your decision, conceal your trouble, a judgment of the church. That's what has to happen if we're going to deal with these isms, these heresies. Chabal and Cyril took up the organization of a separate church organization only with great reluctance, great reluctance. Didn't want to do it. But it was the times of the Soviet persecution. It was all the rest. There was no nothing, nothing. They were forced into it. St. Damascene says the same thing and others. They were forced into it. Right? Obviously, they would have called immediately a council. They would have gathered. If the Soviets didn't had allowed them, they would have dealt with it in council. That's what the solution was. So why haven't we dealt with it in council? Why wasn't there a council called? That's a major question that I don't have the answer to. And we need to answer as a church. Why hasn't there been a council? And there will be a council. I believe there will be a council. God will bring it about. And all these isms will be dealt with. God, by the prayers and the, and the, and the grace of the new martyrs, made it happen. He did not, and he didn't, so not because he believed that he and his followers alone constitute the true church. Are you listening? Zealous not according to knowledge? but solely in order to avoid dependence on those whose confession of orthodoxy had been compromised. It was a practical, forced measure. And he goes on, even though they were still part of the same church. Same church. Remember these words, Father Seraphim Rose explaining St. Cyril of Kazan. We go on. We've got a few more to go. We're almost done. So there's an important distinction here in St. Cyril between the true mysteries of the surgeonist clergy and the usurpation of sacramental activity manifested in such acts as metropolitan surges, interdictions, and excommunications, and all the rest, right? So St. Father Seraphim is against a bookish application of the canons. Very important today. He's against 
saying Cyril is against blind obedience. Brother Seraph, I love what he says here. The bookish application of the canons, which Spanish Brothers and Cyril so severely condemns, cannot understand this distinction. And thus, some people can find themselves in a position which may be legally correct, that is true on both extremes, legally correct, but is at the same time profoundly unchristian. As if the Christian conscience is compelled to obey any command of the church authorities, any command, every and every command, blind, blind obedience, as long as these authorities are properly canonical. Not true, not an orthodox approach. We've already said this. This blind concept of obedience for its own sake is one of the chief causes of the success of surgeonism in our century. And I would say ecumenism as well. It's one of the chief causes of the success of ecumenism. People have falsely and mistakenly believed they have no choice but to blindly be obedient to the bishop and everything he says. That's not the orthodox way. How many times are we going to say it? I don't know. Father Seraphim spells it out. St. Cyril spells it out. The new martyrs scream it out. All right? So the saints do. St. Mark of Ephesus, St. Maximus the Confessor. Again and again throughout church history, we have those times when you cannot be obedient to Christ by being obedient to your bishop or priest. There are those times in church history. I'm not going to get into details. It's a question of discernment, but the principle must be accepted if you're going to call yourself an Orthodox theologian, an Orthodox historian, an Orthodox Christian. St. Damascene now. A few words from him and we'll close it out. He's talking practically what's going to be necessary going forward now. This is late, probably 29, 30, 31. I'm not sure exact dates. And he's saying, look, going forward, this is what it looks like is going to happen. And this might be applicable going forward for us. I don't know. We don't know what, what awaits us. It could be short-lived, a couple of years. could be longer. We'll see. We don't know. If you're going to be deprived of, again, shut down, again, forced vaccinations, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to a place where they're going to vaccinate you against your will? I don't think so. That's not God's way. You don't need to figure it out. You don't need to think about the vaccine. God doesn't do that. The devil does. He forces things on you. Anything that's forced, God says, as many as would be my disciples come after me, doesn't he? If you want to be saved. Do you want to be healed, he says. This is the way God works. Anywhere you see forced, must, mandatory, not of God. You don't need to think anything further. Not of God. Not the way God works. Bishops would come out and say, yes, we must force them to be vaccinated. They have fallen from the grace of God. It's that simple. You cannot say that and be illumined. He says it's necessary to unite around the priests known to us in order to recognize through them the grace of Christ in the Holy Sacraments. Of course, there's a time when there's persecution. The Many bishops are apostates. They're renovationists. All right? And he's saying this is what's going to happen. So this could be a lesson for us. It might, we might enter into that. I don't know. It depends where you are. It's a very question of discernment. But there is talk of that. We actually have a prophecy. I can't remember if it's, it's told to us by Elder Ephraim, but I think it's also St. Paisios. I think it comes from St. Cosmas. He says, there'll come a time when you will go many, many kilometers to find a priest. And, of course, in Greece, we have churches in every village, sometimes more than one. So what's he talking about? There'll be a time when you'll have to go many, 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 many kilometers to find a priest. They're going to all be gone, or they're not going to be true priests. They're going to be apostates. They're going to be heretics. I don't know. 
So this might be where we're, where we're headed. He says, let them be, let them do what they have to do. We will go our way with Christ and to Christ. Okay, make a decision. Make your decision for Christ. Whatever it comes, whatever happens, be prepared. Make your decision for Christ. He goes on, let us be patient, displaying brotherly love towards the perishing. Don't judge the people who are vaccinated. If you're against, if you're, you're obviously listening to me, you're probably against the vaccinations. I'm not for them. I think they're diabolical. Uh, but people think I'm crazy. People think I'm leading you astray. I got a, two emails this week. I see somebody writing to my bishop, complaining to my bishop. You're, you are, a lot. this priest is teaching bad things. He's leading people to get sick and maybe die from the COVID. Okay. You're free not to listen to me. You're all free. As many as want to listen, let them listen. I don't really care. No one is being forced to listen to me. Uh, let us obey civil their civil laws, which are not contrary to the spirit of Christ, but we will not sacrifice before the outside. This is about the church, the temple, the, the holiness. No Caesar in the temple, he's saying, right? Before the power of man, a single one of the church regulations, not one iota of the dogmas of the Christian faith. We will not allow the godless to shamefully prevent our participation in the holy mysteries. We will not allow their corrupting influence in the area of our spiritual relations. Sound like applicable to our day? I think it is. We will not allow godless to shamefully prevent our participation in the holy sacraments. What is that? What was happening? Godless people. California shut down all the churches. How many months? You can go get an abortion. The godless authorities said, go get an abortion. Go to strip joint. I don't know, whatever, whatever. Smoke weed. No church. No church for you. All right. Is there anything lack? Do we need something more to figure out this is not of God? What are we doing when we think that these people are for our health and our salvation? I don't get it. I don't know what's wrong. We will not allow their corrupting influence in the area of our spiritual relations, in the world of our mutual love for Christ, our faith, our sacraments, or in our church, the holy of holies of our soul and our life. We will not allow it. This is the decision that we all have to make. Follow the saints, St. Damascene. Pray to God for us. A little while now, and the lamps will be lit. This is, a, this is going, to, going to end with some very positive, prophetic words from St. Damascene and Father Seraphim and St. John, and then we're going to open up the questions. So get ready. We're almost done. Let it be that darkness is temporary. I've already read this, but I'm going to read it again. I want everybody who's watching to get it to remember this well. Let it be that darkness has temporarily covered the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour. I love this. This is the, one of the most beautiful passages in all the writings of the new martyrs. Let it be that the lamps of certain churches are hidden under bushels so as not to be put out by the satanic whirlwind, as has occurred with the majority. After a short time of rest from the Lord, perhaps even in the time when the darkness will imagine that his work has already been completed, the lamps will be revealed, will come together, will ignite a multitude of others which had been put out, will pour together into a great flame of faith, which when efforts are made to put it out, will burn more brightly. Now, this is St. Damascene writing at the, probably one of the worst moments or some of the worst moments in the 1920s and 30s. And yet look at the faith of the man. Where's your faith who say the church can't rise from this? Where's your faith? Why aren't you a disciple of St. Damascene? On the right and the left, the one who give up and run to the secular authorities for guidance and the ones who reject the church and say nothing can be, nothing good. It's all downhill from here. Where's your faith? Where's your trust in God? He goes on. 
no matter how few we might be, the whole power of Christ's promises concerning the invisibility of the church remain with us. It's not a numbers game. People look at numbers and say, well, all the numbers, all the bishops, they're all apostates. God never works on that basis. This is rationalism. You who base your decisions on the truth of things and where the church is and not on numbers, you're a rationalist. You're not a faithful member of Christ's church. Throw it out. It's not about numbers. We started with 12. We're going to end with 12, maybe. I don't know what number will be at the end of history. It's not going to be a lot. They're going to be fleeing in the desert. The numbers don't matter. With us is Christ, the conqueror of death and hell. The history of Christianity shows us that in all the periods when temptations and heresies have agitated the church, the bearers of church truth and the expressors of it were few. For those people who say, just trust the church organization, it's whatever they say, the number of, if all the bishops around the world say it, it must be true. That's not an argument. That's not even a faithful approach to things. Throw that out. Look at the things in terms of the patristic tradition following the Holy Fathers. Don't talk about numbers. It's a fallacy. And he goes on. But these few, with the fire of their faith and their zealous standing in the truth, have gradually ignited everyone. St. Athanasius the Great, St. Basil the Great, St. Mark of Ephesus, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Uh, Theodore the Student. goes on and on. The same thing will happen now if we few will fulfill our duty before Christ and his church to the end. If you believe you're one of those few, but you don't believe in the recovery of the church in terms of its victory over the various isms, right? And a council and Christ intervening in history. I don't know. Are you really one of the few? You got to kind of wonder. The, fear, fearness, the fearless confession of faith and of one's hope, we just did that, right? This is what we're saying right here. Look at the hope he has. Fearlessly confess your hope in Christ. Do not doubt. Do not doubt. The fearless confession of faith and of one's hope and a firm standing in the church's laws, the commandments of Christ, are the most convincing refutation of the Sergian deviation or the ecumenist deviation or the covetous deviation, okay? The devi devi deviation, sorry. Uh, and are an unconquerable obstacle to the hostile powers directed against the church. That's your answer, folks. Who's it? What are we going to do? How are we going to overcome it? What's going to happen? He just gave you the answer. Fearless confession of faith. One's hope. Firm standing in the, in the commandments. These are an unconquerable obstacle to the hostile powers. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'll take that out. Print it out, put it in your, your refrigerator, put it on your next to your prayer corner. Live these words. These words are so beautiful and so filled with faith. All right, I'm probably going to skip this because we're running out of time, but you've seen this. I presented this. Uh, you need to go and run to this as well. This is a very important document. It gives a lot of insight into what's going on. I'm just going to read two short excerpts from it, and then we're going to move on. This is, of course, St. Anatoly, the younger of Optina, on his prophecy, and his prophecy of the future of lawlessness. Very important. Very important. So one of the delusions we're facing today in this period is that we're not recognizing that we have heretical-minded bishops over us, Right? He's prophesying that there will come a time when they will take over the church. He didn't say take over the false church. Again, for our friends on the right who write off the local churches, this prophecy 
if you think that you are uh, hermetically sealed in orthodoxy and all protected, and so there, therefore you have no problem with heretics, well, this, 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 this uh, uh, prophecy doesn't apply to you, does it? But it applies to the church. So are you in the church? That's the question. Are you in the church? Because this doesn't apply to those who are without any kind of heretical temptation. He actually says they will take over the church, not the false church, not the heterodox, the church. What's going on here? How can that happen? Well, this is what happens when we have crisis and heresy in every age. We have this again throughout church history. It's happening again. Everywhere they will appoint their servants and the spirituality will be neglected. This is exactly what's going on in the latter half of the 20th century with ecumenism and surgeonism, Kessero-Papism probably would be the better term, applied across the board. The Lord will not leave his servants without protection and ignorance. He will not leave his servants. For you, say, we've lost it. We're abandoned. We're lost. We're heretics. We're going to hell. He doesn't say that, does he? He will not leave his servants, he says. He said, by the fruits you will recognize them and strive to distinguish them from real pastors. This is exactly what we're living through right now. The faithful are coming again and again to people like myself and others and Father Kuzmas, and they're saying, Who's, where's the real pastors? Where's the people who are right and dividing the word of truth? Where's the ones who, who aren't, you know, followers of the very isms? And they're doing exactly what the saint says. They're saying, let's, let's see their fruits. Let's recognize who are their spiritual thieves who are snatching their spiritual flock that do not enter through the door into the sheepfold, but cross over to another place, as the Lord said. That is, they will enter in a legal way with force, violence, destroying God's order. Actually, that's actually happening exactly as he's saying it, isn't it? We have people who are forcing themselves in. What are the Ukrainian schismatics doing? They're forcing themselves into the church without repentance. How about the various ecumenists who are, are climbing up the ladder in church governance without fulfilling the canonical presuppositions for mysteries for, for ordination? How about those who have fallen into various fleshly sins who should have been defrocked? They're the kinds who are entering into the sheepfold, but not through the door. And the Lord calls them criminals, doesn't he? Truly, their real duty is persecution of true pastors, their imprisonment. For without that, the spiritual flock may not become captured. Therefore, my son, when you see in the church mocking of the divine act, teaching of the fathers, and God established the order, know that the heretics have already appeared, even though for some time, they might hide their evil intentions or will unnoticeably deform the divine faith to better succeed by deceiving and tricking the experience. It's like he's talking about our days. I really think he is. I'm not uh, going to tell you that. Absolutely, it's 100%. I think he is. I think he's talking about our days. <clears throat> like wolves and sheep seek, they will recognize by their various, they will be recognized by their various nature, love of lust and love for power. When you see being glorious, Bishops loving their thrones, that's a sign something's wrong. They're not true servants of God, who are meek, brotherly, loving, obedient to the church, order, and traditions. When you see them overturning traditions, like Miletus Metisakis did, right? He came in and he said, new calendar, uh, innovation of church in, in, of, uh, in terms of marriage, marriage of clergy, uh, it declares the Anglican order is valid. All these things are overturning of the patristic tradition, the tr traditions of the church. And, and I'm not saying that therefore everybody's on a new calendar is lost. I'm saying that what he did was create innovation. And now many millions of Orthodox Christians, whether they like it or not, in many ways, have 
found themselves under this weight of innovation. And it, and it, it is problematic. It's not a matter, I don't believe it's a matter of dogma, but it is an innovation and it is a part of the whole uh, spirit of the world. Uh, these haters of the monastic life who merely have the appearance of piety will strive to draw monks on their side, promising them protection and worldly goods and comforts. Let me go back a second because I know we get tons of questions on this. Innovation, the way it came about, right? The ecclesiological error of mythic sakis and all the rest. That's what's important to understand. It's the departure from the conciliar, again, the departure from the conciliar way of life in the church. That's the, the haters of monastic life who merely have the appearance of piety will strive to draw monks on their side, promising them protection and worldly comforts. If you live to see that time, rejoice for that. That time, the faithful, this is you. I, I believe this is you. I think he's talking to us. And he's talking to people before us as well. It's not just us. Not possessing other virtues will receive wreaths merely for standing in the faith. This is our path of salvation, brothers and sisters. We don't have, let's be honest, we don't have virtues. Let's be honest. We're, we're, we're lax. We, we, we've, been, we've been raised on a full stomach and lots of goodies. And we like them. And we're comfortable in our way of life. That's the way it is. Well, that's not the ascetic life. That's not the narrow path. That's not the self-denial. All right? We need to work on that. So let's not boast we're really poor Christians in this day and age. Generally, there are exceptions. So he says rejoice to us poor Christians. Why? Because si simply by standing in the faith, according to the word of the Lord, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. So this is a great sign for us poor Christians, of course, we should repent of all our lackness, laxity, because without spiritual struggle, without spiritual grace, we may very well fall away. But let's struggle to do what he says and be saved. All right, I'm not going to go on. You can read this text on your own. It's very important, uh, very instructive. Uh, check it out. All right, now, these are the last two frames, and then we're done. All right, actually, three frames. This is from this is from uh, Father Seraphim Rose's uh, biography, and he's talking in the chapter today in Russia tomorrow in America. I thought this was a good way to end this series. And Father Damascene prefaces his words is one of his last talks in his life in 1981 uh, by the in the following: Holy Russia has not disappeared; it will resurrect. This was back in. 94 that he wrote this and the resurrection of Russia as Father Seraphim stated many times will not affect Russia alone upon it depended the fate of the whole world and Father Seraphim says Russia the first country to experience to come uh, that's a misprint well that's a total misprint I was doing this verbally uh, it's communism I think it's communism and the first country to begin to wake up from it yes and survive it all right There's, that should be communism First country to experience communism and the first country to wake up from it and survive it. Despite the continued reign of communist tyranny in Russia, if, uh, why is this so poor? I don't know. It isn't uh, capture the soul of Russia. The religious awakening that can be seen now in Russia is undoubtedly only the beginning of something immense and elemental. The recovery of the soul of the whole nation from the plague of atheism. This is the reason why Russia today can speak a word of significance to the whole world, which is plunging into the same trap of atheism from which Russia is emerging. Very important. 
We're in the trap of atheism in the West. There's absolutely no doubt about it. This is why the future of Russia is so closely bound up with the future of the whole world in a religious sense. At the end of this lecture, he says the following. In the book, this is very interesting and important. Pay attention. In the book, which most thoroughly describes the events to occur at the end of the world, the apocalypse of St. John the Theologian at the beginning of the seventh seal, the seventh seal, which precedes the final plague to come upon mankind, it is said that there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Some have interpreted this to mean a short period of peace before the final events of world history, namely the short period of the restoration of Russia. The preaching of the worldwide repentance will begin with Russia, that the new ultimate word, which even Dostoevsky hoped Russia would give, that new ultimate word that Dostoevsky hoped Russia would give to the world. Now, it's very interesting what he says here. He interprets this silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Now, I'd like to look at this, and I will look at this with you all when we get to this point uh, in our study of the book of Apocalypse when we begin in uh, late September. But I find this very interesting because Elder Paisio, St. Paisio, and others have said that there will be an intervention of Christ in history, and it will be a short time of peace and, and a mission to the world. It's exactly what Father Seraphim says about Russia. And this is tied up with the whole events in the Middle East, the massive war, the end of Turkey as a country, the taking back of Constantinople, giving of, actually giving Constantinople from the various forces back to Greece. Greece will be, you know, nominally Greek people will be, uh, along with those in, in uh, Asia Minor, will be restored to self-governance in Constantinople. There will be a Christian Presence again, there'll be a rule of Christians. This is, a, this is what's been prophesied by several saints, St. Cosmas, St. Paisios, and others. And I think this is interesting because it will, it will be a short time in which the mission of the world, mission of the world will take place. There'll be a mission. Uh, and I think it goes along with what Father Seraphim is saying here. It's very interesting, his interpretation of the scriptural passage. When we get there, we'll have much more to say about that in the fall. So join us uh, for that whole new series that we'll start. Archbishop John. And this is Father from Rose writing. Archbishop John ended his report in 1938 Sobor with a prophecy and a hope that there will be a true Pascha in Russia that will shine forward to the world, the whole world, before the very end of all things, the beginning of the universal kingdom of God. Shake away, this is St. John, shake away the sleep of despondency and sloth, O sons of Russia. Behold the glory of her sufferings and be purified. Wash yourselves from your sins. Be strengthened in the Orthodox faith so as to be worthy to dwell in the dwelling of the Lord and to settle in his holy mountain. Leap up, leap up, arise, O Russia, you who from the Lord's hands have drunk the cup of his wrath. When you and your suffering shall have ended, your righteousness shall go with you in the glory of the Lord shall accompany you. The peoples shall come to your light and the kings to the shining which shall rise upon you then lift up your eyes and see. Behold, your children come to you from the west and the north and the sea and the east. Blessing in you, Christ, forever. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful word. Spoken so early, right? We're talking about 1938. The height of the persecution of the church was totally decimated in Russia. This is the faith of the saints. You who have little faith, prove yourself. Ask for God to increase your faith in the church. Stop doubting. Stop looking at the rulers for this moment, the Antichrist who have ascended the thrones. 
God is in charge. Have faith in God and follow the examples of these saints right here. These are the saints and many, 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 many more. Let's follow the example. Thank you for being with me throughout these 10 weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for praying. And God help us to follow their examples and be saved by their prayers. Amen.